Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, hello, Calvary of Albuquerque. Unfortunately, I'm not with you today. I'm down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where I'm speaking at a huge Promise Keepers event and then a marriage conference and then a church. So I've got my work cut out for me the next few days. But in my place is a very special guest, one that you know. I know that you've read some of his books. Uh, Lee Strobel, who's our speaker today, was a former journalist for the Chicago Tribune, a legal journalist, so he's got a legal mind. And you know him because some of the books that he's written, like The Case for Christ or The Case for Faith, The Case for the Creator or The Case for Christmas, he's written numerous works, many of which will be available today at a resource table in the East Foyer. And Lee's going to be out in the courtyard personally signing books if you'd like him to do that. So he's a great and renowned speaker. I hope you listen carefully. But the coolest thing about Lee Strobel is his first impressions of Albuquerque, which I know he's going to tell you about when he came here once before. Please give a great Albuquerque welcome for Lee Strobel. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Good to be with you. Thanks for coming tonight. Thank you. Yeah, Skip said uh, many years ago when our little daughter was uh, just a infant, we drove from Chicago to Phoenix and we stopped in Albuquerque. And the only impression I remember, we stopped at a little restaurant and had lunch. And I remember walking away and saying to my wife, that was the friendliest place I've ever been in my life. Everyone was so friendly. I, I, and I remember that all these years. And the first thing I said to Skip, said, you got a friendly city. I, I don't know what it is. It must be the water or something, but it's great. So one of the things I love about Skip, he said, Lee, you can talk about whatever you want to talk about. And, uh, boy, he's a trusting soul. And, I, you know, what I love to talk about is why it is we as Christians believe what we believe. And I don't care if it's to a group of a bunch of people or just one person. I love talking about that, but I have to admit, sometimes the conversation does not go as well as you think it's going to go. I had one of those embarrassing things happen a while back. I was speaking at a conference in the South with my ministry partner, Mark Middleberg. And then, and then the next day, we went to one of these Cracker Barrel restaurants to get some breakfast. You seen these places? So to get to the front door, we had to go past some rocking chairs where people were people watching. And there was a young woman about... 18 years old, dark hair, dark eyes, quite attractive, sitting in the chair, and the guy next to her, about the same age. So I'm walking toward the door, and as I step in front of this young woman, I hear her say, what's a deist? And I thought, I just wrote a book about that. So I turned on my heel, and I looked her in the eye and said, a deist is someone who believes that God created the universe, but then he walked away. I said, a deist is someone who believes that God sort of wound up the universe like a giant clock and is just letting it kick click down. I said, a deist is someone who believes that God is distant and detached and disinterested. I said, but that's not what the evidence shows. And I started talking about the evidence that shows God's involvement in humankind. I talked about cosmology and physics and biochemistry and genetics. I talked about human consciousness. I talked about the resurrection. I'm going on and on and on and on. And her eyes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally, I turned to my friend. I said, can you believe it? I happened to stand, step in front of her. She said, what's a deist? And my friend said, Lee. She said, buenos dias.
I really wish that were a joke. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. But you know what the good news was? The ice was broken at that point. How could we not get into a spiritual conversation? So, I mean, we did. And, uh, but you never know. But tonight, what I want to do um, is something very simple. I just want to tell you a story. It's a true story. It's my story. And it's a story that begins in atheism. Because from a young age, from about age 16 or so, I considered myself an atheist. I thought that, you know, God didn't create people, but people created God. Why? Because they were afraid of death. And so they manufactured this idea, this all-loving, all-knowing, benevolent jelly bean in the sky to make themselves feel better and invented this idea of heaven. That's what I thought. Now, I tend to be a skeptical person that's sort of woven into my DNA and my background is in journalism and law. So you put those two together, you can imagine what kind of a uh, skeptic uh, (laughs) that you get. Uh, I was a legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, and we used to pride ourselves on being skeptics and cynics. We wouldn't accept anybody's word at face value. We always wanted to have at least two sources to confirm a fact before we'd print it in the newspaper. So we actually had a sign in the newsroom that said, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. How do you know? Maybe she's lying. You got any proof? Got any evidence? I mean, that's the kind of skepticism that I had, and, and, and I approached spiritual matters that way. And the truth is that because I I had no belief in God, I had no moral framework for my life. Um, Even Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, once said, you know, if there is no God, there's no absolute right and wrong. There's only, like, opinion. And, you know, I just, I mean, this is, I came here to tell you the truth. This is uncomfortable to talk about, but I'm going to be honest with you. I lived a very immoral life, drunken and profane, and self-centered, and uh, narcissistic, self-destructive in many ways. I mean, that's who I was. I had a lot of anger in me. And, and I, I, I didn't know why, but, you know, looking back, I think it's because I, I was always looking for that perfect high. You know, always looking for that ultimate pleasure experience, and nothing would measure up. And so I would get mad. I remember one day um, I got in an argument over with my wife, and, and my little daughter was there. I was so mad, I just reared back and I kicked a hole in our living room wall, just out of raw rage. And my wife is crying, my daughter's crying. I, I, that's who I was. In fact, I will tell you the ugliest truth about me, which is when my little girl was little toddler. If she was playing with some toys on the living room floor, you know, some blocks or something by herself, and she heard me come home from work through the front door, she would just gather up her toys and go in her room and close the door. She's going to be drunk again? She's going to be yelling and screaming and kicking holes in walls? You know what? At least, you know, it's nice and quiet in here. Friends, that is the ugliest truth about me. I married a woman who was agnostic. And uh, we had a good marriage uh, until a few years into the marriage. She came up to me one day and said, you know, I've been checking out Christianity, been going to church, checking things out, and I've decided to become a follower of Jesus. And I thought this was the worst possible news I could get. I thought this was divorce. And yet, in the 
ensuing months, I began to see positive changes in her character and her values and the way she related to me and the children. It was winsome and it was attractive. And so finally, one day, one Sunday morning, she said, Lee, why don't you come to church with me? And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go. Get her out of this cult, you know, that she's involved in. So I did. I, I went to this church and a young guy got up to preach. I don't even think he was shaving yet. Uh, uh, his name was Bill Hybels. And he gave a talk called Basic Christianity. And it just shattered so many of my misconceptions about Christianity. And I remember walking out that day saying two things. Number one, I was still an atheist. He didn't convince me that day that God exists. But number two, I realized if this stuff is true, this has huge implications for my life. Duh. You know, so, so what I decided on that day to do was take my journalism training and my legal training and systematically investigate, is there any credibility to Christianity or any other faith system? And that's what I ended up doing for almost two years of my life. And it was very evident very quickly how to boil it down to one key issue. I realized very quickly that everything revolves around the resurrection of Jesus. Because anybody can claim to be the Son of God. You could claim it, I could claim it, but if Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and then he returned from the dead, that's pretty good proof that he was telling the truth. It's one of the reasons the resurrection is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17 says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And Jesus did clearly claim to be divine. All through the Gospels you see it. In John 10, verse, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And the word in Greek for one means one in essence. I'm one in essence with the Father. And how did the audience understand what he was saying? They picked up stones to kill him because they said, you, a mere man, are claiming to be God. So clearly Jesus claimed to be divine. The question is, did he back it up? Did he prove he was divine? by returning from the dead. And what I want to do in the next few minutes, I want to give you a framework for kind of looking at the evidence for the resurrection, the evidence I discovered as I was investigating whether or not it was true. It's a, four words that begin with the letter E that can help you remember the evidence for the resurrection. I got the basic idea from this. I've adapted it and changed it. But the, I want to give credit to the basic idea to one of the scholars I interviewed who's probably the leading authority on the resurrection in the world, um, Gary Habermas, written many books, debated atheists on the topic. So if you're a Christian, I want, I, I want to give you these, this framework so that as you talk to people and, and, and they have questions about the resurrection, you can remember these four E's. But some of you are here because you're like I was. You're kind of investigating things. And, you know, for you, I hope you kind of get ambushed by the evidence like I was. So what are the four E's that summarize this two-year investigation into the evidence for the resurrection? Well, the first E stands for the word execution, that Jesus was dead after he was crucified. Now, I used to think, like a lot of skeptics think, that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Uh, you know, the Quran says that in Surah 4, verse 157, 158, says Jesus didn't die on the cross. I used to think maybe he fainted on the cross. And then when they took him in the tomb, the cool, damp air of the tomb revived him. And so you don't have a resurrection. He, he wasn't dead in the first place. But then I studied the historical evidence. And I learned that it is, as, it is one of the most powerfully and thoroughly attested facts of history that Jesus died by crucifixion. 
first of all, we know that Jesus was flogged by Roman soldiers. That was an incredibly brutal beating that left him in serious to critical condition even before he was crucified. Let me read you the words of an eyewitness to a Roman flogging. He said, The sufferer's veins were laid bare, and the very muscles and tendons and bowels of the victim were laid open to exposure. This was a horrific beating. And then he's crucified. And when you're on the cross that way, what you ultimately die of is asphyxiation, suffocation. Because when you're hanging on the cross in that position, it locks your lungs into the inhaled position because of the stresses on your chest muscles. And you can't exhale. The only way to exhale is to push up with your feet. Of course, your bloody back is then scraping against the coarse wood of the cross. And you scrape up, you, you push up to relieve the tension of, on your chest so you can exhale, take in a new breath, and then you settle down the cross. And you keep doing that until exhaustion takes over. You can't do that anymore, and you, you, you ultimately die of the effects of suffocation. In fact, if the Romans wanted to hasten your death, they would take you know, a metal rod and shatter your shin bones. That way you couldn't push up anymore and you die. But we know in the case of Jesus, the historical record tells us that a spear was plunged. It went between his ribs. It punctured his heart and his lungs. And he was declared dead by multiple experts. Friends, Jesus was dead when he came down off the cross. I not only have multiple accounts of that in the New Testament documents, which are historically reliable, but I've got five ancient sources outside the Bible that confirm that. With Josephus, a first century historian, confirms that. Tacitus, another early historian. Even the Jewish Talmud admits that Jesus died by crucifixion. You could ask even an atheistic New Testament scholar like Gerd Ludeman of Vanderbilt University. And he will tell you the fact of Jesus dying on the cross is as solid of a fact as you will ever find from ancient history. The first E stands for execution. Jesus was dead. The second E stands for early accounts. We have early records about the resurrection. Why is that important? Because I used to think, like a lot of skeptics, that the resurrection was a legend, a myth that grew up over time. It takes a long time for legend to develop. And so I thought that Jesus died. You know, okay, I'll grant you that. And then, over a period of 50, 100, 150 years later, stories would develop, legends about a resurrection. And that's where I thought it came from. But then I found out something that absolutely destroys the idea that the resurrection of Jesus is a, is a uh, mere legend. It's found in some of the, it, probably the earliest record of all about the resurrection. It is a creed that was recited by the earliest Christians. You can look it up later. It's found in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3. The Apostle Paul preserves us this creed. They used to stand, Christians, in the first century, and recite what they knew to be true, that Jesus died. Why? For our sins, it says. He was buried. And the third day he rose again from the dead. And then it, it mentions specific eyewitnesses by name who encountered the resurrected Jesus and whose lives were changed 180 degrees as a result. Now get this. Scholars from a wide range of theological belief have dated this creed back to as early as two to eight years after the life of Jesus. And therefore, the beliefs that make up that creed go back even earlier, virtually to the cross itself. There was no huge gap of time between the death of Jesus and the idea that he resurrected from the death. There's just a news flash that goes right back to the source. This is 
unbelievably powerful historical evidence. It cannot be a legend. In fact, one of the greatest classical historians who ever lived, A.N. Sherwin White of Oxford University, studied the rate at which legend grew up in the ancient world. And he discovered that the passage of two generations of time is not even enough for legend to grow up and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. We don't have two generations of time passing here. We have a newsflash right virtually from the scene. Friends, it would be unprecedented in the history of the world for legend to grow up that fast and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. So this creed just decimates the idea that the resurrection is a mere legend. Plus, we have other historical reports that are so early they cannot merely be legendary. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in Acts, in the writings of Paul, writings that were circulating during the lifetimes of Jesus' contemporaries who would have been all too glad to point out the falsehood if they were just making this stuff up. So we have Jesus executed. We have early accounts that cannot be legend. The third E stands for the empty tomb. The empty tomb of Jesus. And you know what the most powerful fact, I think, from ancient history that backs up the empty tomb of Jesus is? There was nobody in the first century claiming anything but the tomb of empty, the tomb of Jesus was empty. I mean, you think about it. The uh, authorities made up the story that um, the disciples had stolen the body. Now, that's ridiculous. They didn't have the motive or the means or the opportunity. It's a silly story. Nobody believed it then. Nobody believes it now. But why did they have to make up a cover story? Because the tomb was empty. If the body was in the tomb, they wouldn't have to make up a cover story. But they did. Why? Because the tomb is empty. Look, the issue from history has never been, is the tomb of Jesus empty? No question. It was empty. The question is, how did it get empty? That's the question. And so I went through all of the logical suspects. The Roman authorities, they weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus dead. The Jewish leaders weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus to stay dead. The disciples weren't about to steal the body. Why? So they could knowingly and willingly be tortured to death for a lie? I don't think so. Liars make bad martyrs. I think the best explanation for the empty tomb is that these early historical reports are right, that Jesus did bodily return from the dead, especially when we combine it with the fourth word that begins with the letter E, and that's the word eyewitnesses. Not only was Jesus' tomb empty, but over a period of time, Jesus appeared a dozen different instances to more than 515 individuals. He appeared to believers and to skeptics. To doubters, to tender-hearted people, to hard-hearted people, they talked with them, they, they ate with them, they touched him. Sometimes he appeared to groups, sometimes he appeared to individuals. Think about this. 515 eyewitnesses. Think about, you know, if, if we were to convert this stage into a courtroom, and we were to put a witness stand here, and we were to call to the witness stand every individual who encountered the resurrected Jesus, and we were to let them testify and cross-examine them for just 15 minutes each, and we did it around the clock, do you realize we'd be sitting here for five straight days? How many people among us, after hearing 128 straight hours of eyewitness testimony, would walk away saying, eh, I don't believe it? 
I mean, as an atheist, I had to find a way around this. And I, I did. I thought I did anyway. I thought I got the explanation. These were hallucinations. Could be, right? They were hallucinating. Famous atheist just wrote a book. You know what he says in the book? These were hallucinations. I thought, okay, that kind of explains it, doesn't it? Well, you know what? I'm a journalist. I check things out. And so I went to a source who I considered credible. A guy with a Ph.D. in psychology, been a professor of psychology at a major Midwestern university for 20 years, wrote over 30 books on psychology, and was the president of a national association of psychologists and counselors. I figured this guy knows what he's talking about. So I laid out the evidence. I said, now, Dr. Collins, would you not concede that these were mere hallucinations? And he looked at me and he said, Lee, that is impossible. I said, well, why not? He said, Lee, you have to understand something about hallucinations. He said, hallucinations are individual events. They're like dreams. You know, you, you can't share hallucinations. You don't catch them like the common cold. You know, you know, it's not like you can be asleep with your spouse and wake up in the middle of the night and say, Honey, honey, I'm having a great dream about a vacation in Maui. Let's both go back to sleep. We'll have the same dream. We'll save all the airfare. It'll be great. I wish we could do that. But we can't. Why? Hallucinations are individual experiences that cannot be shared. In fact, then he said something I'll never forget. He said, Lee, 500 people having the same hallucination at the same time would be a bigger miracle than the resurrection. <laughs> and then he said something else. He said, and by the way, if these were mere hallucinations, then the body's still in the tomb, right? Oops, the tomb's empty. Friends, these were not hallucinations. It wasn't wishful thinking. The Apostle Paul was a, had been a persecutor of Christians. He wasn't primed to imagine that he encountered the resurrected Jesus. These weren't, this wasn't wishful thinking. It wasn't make-believe. It wasn't legend. It wasn't mythology. These were actual appearances of Jesus that changed the lives of the people who encountered him. Think about this. Look at the disciples. History clearly shows us that after Jesus is crucified, the disciples are despondent. They're depressed. They're dejected. Their leader is dead. They're going to go back to the fishing business. And yet, history also undeniably tells us that a short time later, in the very same city where Jesus was put to death, these same disciples are now suddenly filled with courage. And they are proclaiming that Jesus returned from the dead and thus proved he is the Son of God, and they were willing to proclaim that to their deaths. And the first time I heard that, I said, I don't buy it. And I had a Christian friend at the time. He said, what do you mean you don't buy it? I said, I don't buy it. He said, why not? He said, hey, come on. There have been religious nuts throughout history who've been willing to die for their religious beliefs, right? All through history. So, so what the disciples are willing to die for their faith? It means nothing. It's true, isn't it? There have been people through history who've been willing to die for their beliefs, Right? Think of 9-11. Why did those terrorists give up their lives to kill a bunch of innocent people? Why did they do that? 
Well, the Chicago Tribune carried the story. The New York Times carried the story. They did it because they sincerely believe with all of their hearts. If they died this way, they would instantly go to paradise to be with their God. So don't tell me the willingness of the disciples to die for their beliefs means anything. And my friend said, oh, Lee, you're missing the point. And what? What's the point? And he said something I'll never forget. He said, look, Lee, people will die for their religious beliefs if they sincerely believe their beliefs are true, right? I said, yeah, absolutely. He said, but people will not die for their religious beliefs if they know their beliefs are false, right? Well, yeah, of course. If you know it's false, you're not going to die for it. Now, follow me on this. Follow me. Let's use a 9-11 terrorist as a contemporary example. They were willing to die because somebody taught them if they died that way, they go to heaven. They sincerely believed it. Do they know whether for a fact it's true? No, of course not. They can't know for a fact. They just have faith. They just believe it. And they believed it so much they were willing to die. Does that tell us anything about the ultimate truth of their faith? No. Because they don't know for a fact whether it was true. They just believed it. Now, in contrast, think of the disciples. In all of history, the disciples were in a unique position. They didn't just believe Jesus returned from the dead and thus proved he's the son of God. They knew for a fact whether it was true because they were there. They touched him. They talked with him. They ate with him. They knew the truth about the resurrection. And knowing the truth, they were willing to die for it. Do you see the difference? The terrorists can't know What's true? He just has faith in something. But the disciples were in a different place. They knew for a fact whether Jesus returned from the dead. He knew this wasn't a legend or a mistake or a hallucination. They knew the truth. And knowing the truth, they were willing to die for it. That does tell me something about the ultimate truth of what they were saying. Do you see? If Jesus didn't, li- didn't rise from the dead, they were lying about their claims. But do you think they would have allowed themselves to be tortured to death for what they knew was a lie? I don't think so. Liars make bad martyrs. Friends, I looked at this kind of evidence for almost two years of my life. I could go on. I've written thousands of pages on the evidence. But you know what? It finally came down to one day. It was a Sunday. And I thought, I've been doing this for a year and nine months now. I've got to start trying to figure this out. i got to try to see if I can reach a verdict in this case. And so I remember it was a Sunday afternoon. I went alone in my room, and I took out a yellow legal pad, and I started summarizing all of the evidence I had seen in that two years. You know, the evidence, the scientific evidence for the existence of a creator, and especially the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ that proved he's the Son of God. And I wrote page after page after page summarizing the evidence, and finally I put my pen down. I said, wait a minute. In light of this avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, it would have required more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. Seriously. I'm serious about that. Why do I say that? Because to maintain my atheism would be like swimming upstream against a torrent of evidence flowing in the other direction. I couldn't do that. I was trained in journalism and law to respond to truth. And on that day, I realized this is true. 
Jesus did return from the dead, proved he's the son of God. Okay. Is that it? I mean, I, I would, I, okay, I believe it. Based on the evidence, I'm convinced. And I didn't know what to do. I was kind of stuck. And then I remembered. A friend of mine had pointed out a verse earlier. So I got out my Bible and I looked it up. It's John 1.12. It says, but as many as received him, To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. And as I looked at that verse, I realized, wait a minute, you can extract the active verbs from that verse and it will form an equation of what it means to become a child of God. Believe plus receive equals become. And so I said, I did believe, I do believe, based on the evidence that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, he proved it by returning from the dead. I, I got the belief part down. I may not know everything, but I know enough to reach a verdict. But I knew at that moment that was not enough. I had to receive Jesus Christ as my forgiver and leader. I had to receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that he purchased by his death on the cross when he died as my substitute to pay for all of the wrongdoing that I ever did. And so I got on my knees and I poured out a confession of a lifetime of sin that would curl your hair. And at that moment, I received complete and total forgiveness as a free gift through Jesus Christ. And at that moment, I became a child of God. And my very next thought, my, my very next thought was, maybe, I, maybe a lesson you'd like to know about this. Maybe I should tell my wife, you know, maybe you should be curious. So I didn't know. So I walked out of our bedroom and I walked down the hallway and I looked into the kitchen and there was my wife, Leslie, standing behind the kitchen sink and our little daughter, remember I mentioned my little daughter, Allison. She was almost five by that time. She was standing in front of her. And Allison was on her tippy toes, and she was able for the first time to touch the faucet. So I walked on, I looked in the kitchen, and they looked at me, and, and Allison said, Daddy, Daddy, look, I can touch it, I can reach it. And I said, wow, you're really getting big. And she ran off. And I said to my wife, I said, honey, that's how I feel. I said, I feel like for the last two years of my life, I have been reaching out and reaching out and reaching out. And I just touched Jesus. He's alive. He's resurrected. He's real. I just gave him my life. And she just, I mean, she burst into tears. And she threw her arms around me. She said, you hard-hearted son of a Baptist, she said. I've been telling you this for two years. Hello, you know. But she said, I'm kidding. She didn't really say that. (laughs) You know what she said? She said, honey, after I became a Christian, I met some women at church. And um, I said to them one day, I said, I I don't have any hope for my husband. He is the hard-headed, hard-hearted legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. He will never bend his knee to Jesus Christ. And this sweet little lady pulled my wife aside and she said, Oh, Leslie, no one is beyond hope. And she gave her a verse, Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six. 
that says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you that heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And can I tell you what happened? Starting on that Sunday afternoon, and it wasn't overnight, it was over time, but as I yielded my life to Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit began to, he indwell, began to indwell me. He began, I began to live for Him. My life began to change. My worldview, my philosophy, my attitudes, my relationships, my priorities, my parenting, my marriage. All of these things began to change over time for the good. For the good. And so, so often I, I get to this point in telling my story and I'd be stuck. Because I'd look out at faces like yours and I'd say, you can't understand. Because you didn't know me. How, how can you really understand the difference that Jesus Christ has made in my life? Because you didn't know me before and after. So, I mean, how can I tell you? How can I, what can I say to tell you about the transformation that God did in my life over time. And I, I, for a long time, I just, I, I didn't know what to say. And then I thought, you know, there's one thing, there's one thing that um, sort of gives a hint at it. And that involves my little girl. I mean, my little girl, Allison, first five years of her life, all she knew was a dad who was kicking holes in walls and drunk and profane and angry. Dad who wouldn't come home a lot of nights. That's all she knew. But she began to watch. She began, from her little five-year-old perspective, she began to watch her dad over time as God changed my life and my priorities and my attitudes. And about, I don't know, five or six months after I gave my life to Jesus, my little girl, Allison, first she went to her Sunday school teacher and then she went to my wife and said, um, I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy. And at age five, at age five, my little girl gave her heart to Jesus Christ. And today she's 31. And she's married to a seminary student. And you know what she does? You know what she does? She said to me one day, she said, Dad, you know, there's a whole bunch of people who are never going to read your books. I said, yeah, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> but she said, you know, a lot of people like novels. They like fiction. She said, what if I could write fiction stories but embed the gospel, embed the story of the love of Jesus in fiction, and maybe I could reach some people that you can't reach. I said, honey, then you do that. And so that's what she does. She writes novels with the love of God embedded in the story. And then my son, same thing. He came to faith at a young age, watching the change in his family. He went on to get an undergraduate degree in biblical studies, a master's degree in philosophy of religion, another master's degree in uh, New Testament. Now he's getting his Ph.D. in theology at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. 
Because he said, Dad, there's a whole generation out there that doesn't understand. This is not wishful thinking. This is not legend and make-believe. This is based on a solid foundation of historical truth. And I said, son, you study and you learn and you get your Ph.D. and you tell your generation. Friends, God changed my life. He changed my wife. He changed my son. He changed my daughter. And that's my story. So what do you do with it? What do you do? Let me, I, here's how I want to just end tonight. I just want to say, okay, in light of all of that, let's go back to that equation, believe plus receive equals become. And let's go through that. And you know what? Some of you may not believe. You're like I was. You're a skeptic. Can I tell you something? That's okay. It's all right. As long as you do what I did, check it out yourself. The Old Testament and New Testament both say if you sincerely seek God, you're going to find him. So investigate with an open heart and an open mind. I mean, if my book is helpful, I just wrote The Case for the Real Jesus. I traveled 24,000 miles to interview experts and pose to them the toughest objections to Christianity that you read on the Internet or you read in these books by atheists. And I forced them to give answers that we could all understand. So if that book's helpful, fine. I'll give you something totally free. I created a website. It's leestrobel.com. We've loaded hundreds and hundreds of absolutely free video clips there. You can go in. You can type in your tough question in the search engine about Islam, about the resurrection, about whatever. And boom, up will come a whole bunch of free videos that you can look in the eyes of an expert and hear not just what Christians believe, but why we believe it. It's totally free. Use it. It's for you. But check it out. Check it out. And then finally, let me end with this. And here's, here's why I came to New Mexico. Because some of you, you got the believe part down. You know, you don't know everything, but you know enough. You believe enough, but you've never received. Your life hasn't changed. Your son and your daughter have not seen a difference in your life. Why? Could it be because you're in agreement with Christian doctrine? But there's never been a point in time where you've repented of your sin, received forgiveness and grace as a free gift from Jesus Christ, and thus become a true child of God. Could, it, could, could that be the reason? Friends, I couldn't forgive myself. If I came all the way from California, and I, I didn't give you an opportunity, if you believe but you're not sure you've ever received. If I, I just Let's do it now. Let's make sure. Let's draw a line in the sand and say, today is the day. I can always look back on that day. And no, that is the day in repentance and faith I came to Jesus Christ. And I became a child of God forever. Friends, you can do that right now. You don't have to know everything. You know enough. You know what you know? Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and he backed it up by returning from the dead. You know what? That's enough for now. That's enough for now. So if you want to take that step, then I just want to give you the opportunity. Just, let's just close our eyes and bow our heads. And if you want to take that step, just in your heart, God will hear you. It is, you know, he hears every thought in your head. So in your heart, just say, Lord Jesus, as best I can, I do believe. I may not have every answer. I may not know everything, but I know enough. 
Lord Jesus, to know that you claim to be the Son of God and you backed it up by returning from the dead. And so, Lord Jesus, right now, I confess to you, I've not lived the kind of life I should have lived. I know that. I've fallen short a million ways. And so I confess that. And I want to turn from that. And I want to stop walking my path. And Lord Jesus, I want to walk your path with the help of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord Jesus, right now, I reach out and I receive as a free gift that I cannot earn or merit this gift of forgiveness and eternal life that you purchased when you died on the cross to pay for all of my sin, past, present, and future. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving me that much that you would die so that I could live forever. Help me to live the kind of life that you want me to live. Because, Lord Jesus, from this moment on, I am yours. And now, Father, for all those that took that step today, we thank you. We celebrate with them. We know this is going to be the greatest adventure of their life, a relationship with you through your son, Jesus, that will flourish the rest of their life and then on eternity forever. And, Father, for those who don't yet have enough, they don't know enough, they're not ready to take that step, I pray by your Holy Spirit you would open their eyes to the truth of Scripture. You would open their eyes to the truth of the resurrection. You would open their eyes to their need for a Savior so that someday we could celebrate their rebirth as well. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our forgiver and who is our leader and who is our very, very, very best friend. Amen. Thanks, everyone, for your attention tonight. God bless you. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.